Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, um, you are great, you are good, you are kind, you are all-knowing, all-powerful, you're all-present. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for um, how often we fail to realize our need for you. And as I just sing that song, Lord, it's a great reminder to me that every day, Lord, at every moment of every day, I need you. Uh, Jesus tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing, meaning there's nothing we could do of any significance or eternal value apart from a right relationship with you. Lord, would you remind us of our need for you today? Would you remind us that blessed are the poor in spirit? And um, Father, just help us to have ears to hear this morning, that you would waken our hearts, Lord, from the distractions of what lies ahead for the rest of this day. And um, Lord, may we really uh, learn from each other. And this time together we pray and we give it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is going to be an impossible ask for many of you because um, I'm going to throw a few images up on the screen and I'm going to ask you to kind of hold your applause, if you will, um, or your, your scorn, and I just want you to kind of think for a little bit about what is your first impression of each image I'm going to throw up on these screens. Just what comes to mind? Be honest. What comes to mind? Number one. I say, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it would come. That's okay. I knew it. Yeah. Yeah. So what comes to mind, just think about it. Yeah, yeah, see? I knew I could count on the Aggies, right? What comes to mind, what are your, what are your thoughts? What is, what's the, what is it that, um, how do you feel? A little different, huh? What if this guy walks into your summit group this morning? What if this guy sits beside you at lunch today? What if she sits beside you at lunch today? What if he showed up at your summit group today? What if he sat beside you at lunch today? What if he walked in your office today? What if you got to meet him for lunch? Now, not guys are walking around with money bags like that, but you know what he represents, right? You have an opportunity today to have lunch with him. You have an opportunity today to have lunch with him. What are the thoughts that go through your mind? This guy walks into Summit today, 
and he ends up in your group, what does that do to your heart? This guy walks in your group today at Summit. What does that do to your heart? See, we're talking today about favoritism. Favoritism. You see, we naturally gravitate toward, naturally gravitate toward people with whom we have a a common interest, right? Around hobbies and sports and schools and and professions. That's natural. I mean, I get it. I mean, of course, I threw up the Longhorns and the Aggies. That's that's easy, right? Because those who went to Texas, you know, it's hook them and it's fun and we get excited and Aggies, you know, whoop and all that good stuff, right? And and, and so we rally around those things and the people who uh, went to school with this or or share an allegiance to a team, it's fun to get with those folks and cheer and we get excited and we have something in common with them. Or people who love to play golf or people who love to uh, ride bikes or run. People who went to the same school or have the same profession, you know, maybe we're Doctors, you know, love to get together and talk about medicine or who knows what. We, we naturally gravitate toward those who are like us. But we tend to favor those who have something we want. And there's a big difference. We tend to favor those who have something that we want, that we feel like can do something for us. It might be money. You know, there's a reason why the Proverbs say that the rich man has many friends, but not so for the poor. Why? Because everybody wants to be friends with the rich man because he can offer them something. We favor those who have power, who have influence, who have prestige. We want to get around them. We want to look good in front of them. We notice them, and we want them to notice us. And so what we do is we favor those who we feel like can serve our best interests at the detriment, if you will, of those who we feel like maybe aren't like us or have less than we have. We're talking about the problem of favoritism. Turn to James chapter 2. Let's let's look at this together. James is going to hit on this theme a couple of times in his book. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, what does he say? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you remember, I said that James is, is like the Proverbs of the Old Testament. It's, it's what Proverbs is to the Old Testament is to the New Testament here. There's proverbial sayings, if you will, and his emphasis is faith in action, faith applied. He's moving past theory to brass tacks, where the rubber meets the road. And he's going to develop, or he's going to talk about several topics in chapter 1, and then he's going to develop them throughout the rest of the book. And this is an example of that. He mentions this idea of the rich and the lowly and the humiliation and the exaltation. And and you kind of scratch your head and you're going, okay, well, we're talking about trials and suffering. So what's the connection? 
And then in the end of chapter 1, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's quite a statement, isn't it? He's going, hey, the bottom line is, let's, let's just think about this. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans. Who are widows and orphans? Those people who can do nothing for you. How do you treat people who can do nothing for you? And now he's going to go into chapter 2, and he's going to talk about how we tend to favor those who can do something for us. And then we tend to look down on those who we don't feel like can serve our purposes. And he's going to address that. He's going to say, hey, as believers, as those who know Jesus, as those who live according to the royal law, that's a problem. And so chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you see the pervasive of, pervasiveness of favoritism. Verses 5 through 7 of this chapter, you see the consequence of favoritism. Verse 8, the remedy, and 9 through 13, the severity. Let me show you what I mean. I want to unpack this chapter for you. The pervasiveness of favoritism, verses 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Then he gives an illustration. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And that question assumes an affirmative answer. Answer, yes, you have. You see, James is saying, hey, as believers, we're not to show favoritism. But he makes the point that favoritism is not just a challenge or a problem for those out there. Favoritism is a problem for those of us in here as well, within the church. This is a problem. Favoritism is a problem inside and outside of the church. You know, this is candidly maybe the number one reason why so many people are turned off from the church. I want you to think about that for a second. You know, what, what is it that creates an obstacle as to why someone would want to come with you to church? Is because they've walked into church before, they've met with people who go to church before, and they felt like they were on the outside. It might be because of social status, it might be because of money, it might be because of position or profession or education or clothing or the car you drive. It may be all those things, or it may be, hey, you favor people who are talented. You favor people who are well-spoken. You favor people who haven't made the same mistakes I've made. I don't know what it is. But I will tell you, as I try to love and reach out and be intentional with my neighbors and friends, It's not theology of who Jesus is. Usually, 
that keeps people from wanting to come with me. But it's how they've been treated, at least their perception, by those in the faith community. Uh, I, I really don't want to go to another group where I feel like I'm on the outside. Thanks. The last time I went, no one spoke to me. And so what you typically hear is, oh, churches, people feel with hypocrites. They're hypocrites. And what they're saying in essence is, is the church has a problem. The church plays favorites. And James is saying, this is a problem. It's not just a problem out there of the rich, exclusive country clubs, if you will, and places people can't get into. It's a problem right here. It's a problem within the church. And it's a problem in this room. See, we, are all, we all naturally gravitate toward those who are like us. I get that. But let's be honest. This is kind of one of those respectable sins, to use a title from a popular author out there. One of those things we really don't focus on very much, but James puts a lot of attention on. And he talks about the pervasiveness of favoritism. And he says, here are the consequences. Here's the consequence of when the church plays favorites. Look what he says. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppose you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He asks a series of questions here, all of which assume an affirmative answer. Yes, they are. That's exactly who the rich are. You see, in God's economy, follow me on this, in God's economy, wealth is not measured on external appearances, but on the inner, internal condition of the heart. That's how wealth is truly measured. And we must aim to value what the Lord values as opposed to what this world values. Otherwise, we will find ourselves in opposition to God. I know that's a mouthful. But I want you to think about this for a second. This is what I think is happening in the book of James. And what you've got to understand, because this passage, talk about interpretive challenges. If you're not careful, you can walk away and you can read, not in the context of what's happening here, And with the totality of Scripture, you can walk away and go, oh, well, money's bad. Money is neutral. Okay, you got to understand that. If somebody has been blessed by God and has been entrusted with a lot, that that in and of itself is not a problem, but an opportunity of whether or not they're going to be a faithful steward. What becomes the problem, though, in James's context, to a people who are suffering and who are being persecuted, evidently in this church, when those who would walk in who had influence and means would walk in, the believers there would start to play favorites. And that became the problem. And what James is saying is, hey, your brothers are being persecuted. You guys are being persecuted. You've been scattered abroad. Remember the context. And so what happens so often when we experience trials and persecution is where do we turn often is we turn to money. Because we think it can buy us the comfort and the help we need. 
And what was happening here is they were no different than us. You know that kind of therapy shopping kind of deal? They were no different than us. They're struggling. They're hurting. And the problem became that these believers would then favor those of means and wealth to the detriment or to the exclusion of their brothers in Christ. And he's going, wait a minute, let me get this straight. This guy walks in assuming he's not a believer. Okay? This guy walks in, he's impressive on the outside, and you favor him, but yet your brother in Christ, who may not have as much, you look down on him? That's crazy. And he's saying, you better be careful. The consequence of favoritism is you may be favoring the one who is far from God. You may be actually living by your actions in opposition to what God values. Do you see that? Do you see that? We have to be careful what and who we celebrate, don't we? I mean, it, it's, it's almost amazing how starstruck we as believers can get with celebrities and singers and actors or fill in the blank, right? And their lives are so radically opposed to the values of Christ. And yet we spend the money to watch. We spend the money to, to entertain ourselves. We want their attention. We want their applause. We want them on our stages. We want them on our platform. We revere them. We listen to them. And we've got to be careful what we celebrate, who we favor. The remedy to favoritism is found, verse 8, the royal law. Now, the royal law is is if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, verse 8 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. There's the royal law. To love your neighbor as yourself. Now this same idea is first introduced, believe it or not, in Leviticus 19, verse 18. That's where we first see this. Not with Jesus, but Moses in Leviticus. And then we see it with Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. You see, we can best honor the Lord and others by fulfilling the royal law. Now, that's not complicated, is it? But it is hard to love other people as we want to be loved. It's not complicated, but it's hard. Why is it called the royal law? Because this is the kingdom ethic, if you will. This is the way those who live in allegiance and devotion to the king of kings live. Not according to the ways of the world, but according to the king. According to the king who rewards, who sees, who watches us. This is how those who love Jesus live. You know, I'm struck by in thinking through this passage, what was it about Jesus? When you read through, for instance, I'm spending some extended time in the book of Luke right now, you can't help, but when you read through this, 
the effect, the impact Jesus has on people, he is so polarizing. And what's so amazing is the people you think who would be drawn toward him are repulsed by him. But the people who you would think would maybe run away from him or be intimidated by him are moved by him. It's amazing. And there's this continual question, who is this man? That's what Luke continues to ask. Who is this? Who is this? And then you get to chapter, and what's, what's ironic, okay? What's ironic is at the very beginning, the demons of hell know exactly who he is. And they're the first ones to say, I know who you are. You're Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, be quiet. And you see the religious elite kind of just going, man, who is this guy? Because they show favoritism. They look down on people. But then you get to Luke 7, and there's the this, this story about how Jesus goes to have dinner with this Pharisee. And while he's having dinner with this Pharisee, this, this prostitute, this woman who has a, a poor reputation, she walks in and she weeps. And she starts to wipe his feet with her tears and, and she worships Christ. And you know what the Pharisee does? If this man were a prophet, if he really knew who she was, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. And Jesus, it says, knowing his thoughts. <laughs> Jesus, knowing his thoughts, goes, hey, let me ask you a question. And he confronts this Pharisee about his favoritism. And see, he concludes Jesus is a friend of sinners. You see, isn't it amazing? Everywhere Jesus went, <laughs> those who were the outcasts, those who weren't favored by the popular crowd, loved Jesus. The kids, the widows, the orphans, the diseased, the adulterers, the weak, the paralyzed, they love Jesus. But the prideful, those of means, those of independence, they had a problem with Jesus, and Jesus had a problem with them. So that's why it's called the royal law, because Jesus loved perfectly. And that's our challenge. The remedy to favoritism is to see people. To see people. You know how many people feel like they go throughout their day and they feel like they are invisible? They feel like they're invisible because of the way they dress, their lack of education, their unemployment, the job they may have that others never address them. I ask you to think about those images. I ask you to think about how you would respond if you were to see some of those folks. And my challenge for you today is to think about who are the people you're going to see? Not just the people you're excited about who are on your calendar because you have lunch with them and maybe you could do business with them. But what about the waiter who's going to take care of you at that business lunch? What about the valet car attendant? 
What about the bus boy? What about the homeless man you meet on the street? Do you see him? Do you see him? That's James's challenge to us. Here's the severity of favoritism. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Mark that, verse 10. For he who said, do not, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy, mer- no mercy rather, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Point is this. We are just as accountable for showing favoritism as we are for committing other egregious sins, i.e. murder and adultery. You see, James is trying to make the point here, you may, un- you may say, hey, it's not that big a deal. And James goes, oh, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So don't just say, hey, well, I, don't, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I'm good. No, he's going, you've got a problem, and your problem is favoritism. And you've got to deal with it and not, quit, and not keep just overlooking it. In church, we've got a problem. Follower of Christ, Blake Holmes, Watermark, we've got a problem. People walk in to our church People have lunch with you, people who work with you and know who you say you follow and love. And they feel like they're on the outside. And our challenge is to see them and to love them and to minister to them. There's a great story. I was a Peyton Manning fan beforehand, but now I'm an even bigger Peyton Manning fan. And I don't know if you've read this article. It's worth grabbing and reading it. It's why Peyton Manning is a sportsman of the year. Now, I don't know where he stands. He says to be a man of faith in here. But I will tell you what is striking about the story about Peyton Manning. Is Peyton Manning sees people. And even secular writers notice how he sees people. You see, he is an accomplished quarterback. Probably the best quarterback that's ever played the game. And the whole story is about the fact that Peyton Manning, wherever he goes, he sees people. And when he left Indianapolis to go to Denver, the impact that had, not just on the players and coaches, but on the equipment managers and trainers. The story is about how Peyton Manning so loved those that other people don't see that when he left, they wept. It wasn't the other professional athletes that Peyton asked to drive him to the airport when he finally left. It was the equipment managers and the trainers. And they could hardly speak because they knew that was goodbye. And it broke their heart. And I just sat there and I go, man, that's Peyton Manning. You know? I mean, he could call the limo guy and he could have a presidential, you know, uh, 
escort kind of deal all the way to the airport. Everybody cheering for him and call the other teammates and all those things. But instead, Peyton Manning, the story says and why he's a sportsman of the year is this guy loves and respects people. And gang, we have an opportunity today. You have an opportunity today. To not be recognized by Sports Illustrated, but be recognized by the King of Kings who instructs us to live by the royal law, his law. To love the prostitute. Not be impressed by the Pharisee. That's our challenge. So the takeaways, favoritism is a problem inside and outside of the church. In God's economy, wealth is not measured on external appearances, but on the internal condition of the heart. We can best honor the Lord and others by fulfilling the royal law, not the ways of this world. And we're just as accountable for showing favoritism as we are for committing other egregious sins. Don't let yourself get away with it, but check your heart. We're all prone to this, and that's a problem. You got discussion questions when you walked in. I hope those are useful to you and can supplement the time that you have in your book. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for uh, just the rebuke of James chapter 2. I pray, Father, that you would help me today not just see those I have something in common with, those who share the same uh, alma mater, same race, same education, same profession, whatever it is, social status. Help me to see people. Help me to love like Jesus loved. Help my friends, Lord, to have the eyes of Christ. That we would live according to the royal law. And that others would walk away and go, man, there's something different about that guy. That if Sports Illustrated were to follow us, they would name us sportsmen of the year. Not because of how we do when we're on the, in front of a punch, bunch of people with the lights on, but how we love equipment managers and trainers and those behind the scenes. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you've extended grace to us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Bless this time, Lord, in our groups. Help us, Lord, to, to get to the heart of the matter and make the most of this hour we have. And not just go through the motions, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Hey gang, if this is your first time here, I invite you to come up to the front. We'll put you in a small group. Otherwise, you know where you're going. Have a great day.